0: All right. Um, today is the second week of Advent. Last week we started a, a new teaching series for Advent titled A New Day Dawning. And in this series we're talking about the coming of Christ, we're talking about both his first coming. As a baby in Bethlehem two thousand years ago, and we're also talking about his second coming at some point in the future when he will come to establish the eternal kingdom. So, um, one of the traditions during Advent, you know, as you see, is that we light Advent candles on the wreath, and each Sunday up until Christmas, we light one more candle, candle, and this is symbolizing how Jesus comes as the light of the world to dispel the darkness. And you know, something that not a lot of people might know is that uh, each of these candles actually has a name. And, uh, and each of these candles pertains to a different aspect of the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. So last week uh, we, we talked about the first topic here, the first theme, which is the, the first candle is called the prophecy candle or the candle of hope. So we talked about the prophecies and the hope surrounding the coming of Christ. The second candle, which we lit this morning, is called the Bethlehem candle or the candle of preparation. So, this morning we're going to be talking about what it means to live life in light of the kingdom that is coming. So, let's go ahead and pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you, Lord, that you have come to us. Lord, thank you that you came to us to save us and to rescue us, to give us hope, to give us a future. And, Lord, thank you that you are coming again. Lord, we thank you for your kingdom. Lord, the kingdom of life, we thank you that we get to be citizens of that kingdom. But Lord, we long for the coming of that kingdom in its fullness. And Lord, we ask that you would help us today, that we would walk in light of the reality of the coming of your kingdom. Lord, we pray this morning, teach us, speak to us. Holy Spirit, be here in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to start out by reading from Matthew chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, very well-known section of Scripture we're going to start with this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, one thing that we must realize, one thing that we must recognize about the first Christmas is that it was a very political event. Very much so. Think about this. Jesus comes on the scene. The first couple chapters of the Gospel of Matthew tell us about Jesus. It's laying him out as a king. It's presenting to us that he is a king who has come to establish a kingdom. That's why it got the attention of a secular ruler like Herod. He's a baby boy. Herod's this man who has the the whole Roman army behind him, but he's so threatened by the prospect of this little baby who's born. Why? Because he comes as a king. I'm telling you, it was very political, the first Christmas. It was a political event. And then Jesus gets older. In Matthew chapter 4, we read that Jesus began his public ministry with these words. He came on the scene and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So use in terms like that, kingdom. Think about all the words that are associated with Jesus. King of kings, judge of the nations, son of David, prince of peace. These are very political names. So Jesus, he begins everything by declaring and proclaiming a new kingdom. And then what does he do, right? What does he do right after that? He goes out and he gathers some men to himself. He calls these men to come and follow him. And then what does he do? Here in chapter 5, which I just read, the first verse, it says this. He went up to the mountains. He takes these men up to the mountains, and he tells them about this kingdom that he's come to establish. He tells them what this kingdom is all about. He takes them up to the mountains. Now, that's very significant. It's very symbolic when we talk about this because the these are the mountains in the north of Israel, uh, and the mountains in the north of Israel have the same function uh, which mountains around the world have had for centuries and and even thousands of years. And that is this, if you are a revolutionary, if you are a uh, subversive, if you want to bring in a new kingdom, if you want to bring in a new administration, you are going to be a hunted man, a hunted woman. So you're going to have to go up into the mountains, right? Even today, think about this. In places like Afghanistan, where do the rebels hang out? They hang out in the mountains, far away from the capital city. Uh, In places like Colombia, revolutionaries, where are they? They're up in the mountains. You know, revolutionaries, subversives, rebels, they hang out in the mountains. They hide out in the mountains. And so the significance here of Jesus going up to the mountains to teach his disciples is this He is coming as a revolutionary, as a subversive, one who is bringing in, he is seeking to bring in a new administration, a new order of things. He's bringing a revolution. He even says in the first verse of his sermon that he has come to bring a new order of things. That's what the the Beatitudes are all about. It's actually what the whole Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's about this kingdom. It's about this revolution that he's bringing. It's about the new order of things that he is introducing. He's bringing a kingdom, a new kingdom to replace the old kingdom, a new order to replace the old order, the way that things have been done. And and so he goes up to the mountain to teach his disciples about this kingdom, to tell them what it's going to be like, what he's come to establish. So here's what I'd like you to see. You know, during Advent, many times people will ask, you know, what does Christmas mean to you? Well, have you ever thought about this? That for us as believers, uh, when we look at the Bible, one of the things that Christmas means is that a revolution has begun. It's a a revolutionary thing. So, So there are three important things that the Bible has to say about this revolution that Jesus has introduced. Number one, we're going to talk about the nature of the revolution. Number two, we're going to talk about the inevitability of the revolution. And number three, we're going to talk about how to be prepared for the revolution. So that's how we're going to break it down today. The nature, the inevitability, and how to be prepared for the revolution. So, number one, let's begin by talking about the nature of this revolution. And there are two important things uh, to take note of in regard to the nature of this revolution that Jesus brings. Number one, it is a revolution like no other. And number two, it is a revolution of restoration, so, number one, it's a revolution like no other. So, um, you know, many of you know, I, I lived in Hungary for 10 years, and in Budapest, they have this museum, which is called the House of Terror. Now, this, uh, this is in the building of the former Hungarian secret police, which operated, you know, during the, they had a fascist period, and then it operated also during the communist period. And, uh, and this is where the Hungarian equivalent of the SS was operating, and... Uh, and the Hungarian equivalent of the, you know, communist KGB-style uh, secret police. And, and a lot of terrible things happened in this building, uh, but since, you know, the, the change of government in 1989, they turned this into a, a museum. So one of the most interesting exhibits in this museum in Budapest to me is that they have this one room uh, where they have these mannequins dressed up, Right? And you walk in, and they're dressed up in these Hungarian SS uniforms. And then, uh, and then you wait a second, and they flip around. And it's the same mannequin, same face, and he's wearing a communist secret police uniform. And, and the point they're making is actually very profound. Um, and what, what they're saying is that when Hungary had a so-called revolution you know, in the 40s, uh, all that changed was the uniforms. Nothing else, right? It's the same people. They're doing the same things. All that changed was the image they projected. The new regime was was really operating on the same principles as the old regime. The one called themselves Nazis. The other one called themselves communists. But they're both pretty much doing the same thing. They function on the same basic principles. Now, that's actually a very profound statement that they're making. It's actually a very biblical statement that they're making. And that's this, that... All the kingdoms of this world, all the administrations of this world, all the revolutions that take place, they're basically just a reorganizing of power, but they still function according to the same principles, right? It's like reshuffling the same deck. It's like putting a new face on the same old thing. Uh, you know, you, the result is just more of the same of what you already had. Because God's Word tells us this, and this is why it's such a biblical statement, is that really, ultimately, there are only two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of this age, the kingdom of this world, and and the Bible tells us Jesus says three times in the Gospel of John that the ruler of this world is Satan. So there's the kingdom of this world, and there is another kingdom. That's the kingdom of heaven. And you're either a citizen of the one kingdom or a citizen of the other kingdom. Now in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, right, the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus is telling his disciples about the kingdom that he's come to establish, the kingdom of heaven. And as he does that, what we come to understand is that he's talking about something completely different than any revolution that's ever come before. Because he has come to establish a kingdom that's different than anything else that's come before. It functions on different principles and it will have a very different result. You know, there have been revolutions in the past, but in every revolution, right, what happens? The names change, different people come to power, certainly laws change, and, and, but basically they're functioning on the same principles. And the end result is going to basically be the same. Why? Because all the kingdoms of this world function on the principles of the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of this age. But Jesus comes and he brings a revolution like none that's ever come before. He doesn't just come to reshuffle the deck of cards. He comes to replace the deck of cards completely. He's come to bring a new kingdom, a new order. Paul says in Colossians, he says this in Colossians 1, he says, He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. See, there are only two kingdoms, really. And you're either a citizen of one or a citizen of the other. You're either a citizen of the old kingdom the kingdom of this fallen world, the kingdom of this age, or you're a citizen of the new kingdom. So the nature of the revolution that Jesus brings in, number one, it's a revolution like no other. And here we go, number two, it's a revolution of restoration. You know, the, the term, the kingdom of God, this is notoriously hard to define. Have you ever thought about that? How would I define, if, if someone asked me to, how would I define the kingdom of God? You know, my seminary studies, that was one of the assignments I was given. Define the kingdom of God because it's notoriously hard to nail down exactly what that is because it's so multifaceted, right? You say, well, this is the kingdom of God. And then the answer is, well, yeah, but that's not all that it is. It's more than that. And for me, that's what makes this topic the most intriguing topic in the whole Bible. What is the kingdom of God? Uh, and, And way too many people, I think, settle for an oversimplified explanation of what the kingdom of God is. Because really, the kingdom of God is more than just heaven, right? It's more than just the community of those who are redeemed. It's more than that. Here's how I would define what the kingdom of God is. It is the new order of things. It's the new order that Jesus is bringing in. It's life essentially the way it was made to be lived. It is true human flourishing because it is life without the weight of sin burdening us down. It's life without the curse of sin. Now just imagine for a second what that would be like. Life without the curse of sin. It would be no more death, right? Because that is the curse of sin. It would mean no more things like sickness, uh, poverty. It would mean no more breakdown in, in relationships. There would be justice. There would be equity. And really, this is what the, the Hebrew concept of shalom is. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, shalom. You know... Um, we translate the word shalom to be peace in English. But really, the Hebrew concept of shalom is much bigger than, than our understanding of the English word peace. Because for us, right, peace just means the absence of conflict. But the, I would say that the word shalom is much richer than that. In fact, I would, I would go to say that the closest English word we have to really the Hebrew idea of shalom is the word harmony. But even that doesn't really sum it up because, because shalom is deeper. It's more profound than that. So here, here's, a, here's a dictionary definition of what the Hebrew concept of shalom is. I think I have it up on the screen. Shalom means completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. In Hebrew, the the modern Hebrew, the related words would be shalem, which means to pay for something, or shulam, which means to be fully paid. Now, that's a whole mouthful right there, right? And they just sum it up in one word. We don't have one word for all those things, but they do in Hebrew. It's the concept of shalom, and it's huge for the, the Hebrew people. Jewish rabbis would say that shalom is the theme of the Bible. It is the it is what the Bible's all about. It's all about shalom. And of course, they're speaking of only the Old Testament. But the Old Testament concept of shalom is the basis for our New Testament teaching of the kingdom of God. This is the basis of what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. You see, shalom is the original state that things were in before Sin entered the world. And when sin came in, this state of shalom was destroyed. It was lost. And for the Jewish people, their hope of the Messiah is this, that he will come and he will restore shalom. So for the Jewish people, right, shalom is what they long for. You know, you talk about cultural narratives. Well, this is the center of the Hebrew cultural narrative, the word and the idea of shalom. When you meet somebody in Israel, you don't say, hey, what's up, how's it going? You say, shalom, right? This is central to how they think about everything. The greatest city, the city where the temple was built, is called Jerusalem, right? What that means is the city of shalom, Right? That's their hope for the city, that the presence of God will come into that city and rest there, that the Messiah will come into that city and that he will rule and reign, and there he will usher in this kingdom of Shalom. So their hope, right, this was a completely biblical hope, is that the Messiah will come and restore Shalom, the, the state that we had before sin entered the world, and he'll do it by eradicating sin, by judging the nations and by establishing an everlasting kingdom which he'll rule over as king. And so as Christians too when you to realize that that is our hope as well. This is the hope of the kingdom of God. So the revolution that Jesus is bringing, it's a revolution of restoration. The restoration of Shalom. The restoration of of shalom is, is actually exactly what is portrayed in the book of Revelation when it tells us what will happen at the second coming of Jesus. It says this, that Jesus, he will return to judge the nations. If you have your Bible, check it out. It's in Revelation chapter 21. Jesus returns to judge the nations, and what happens? He creates a new heaven and a new earth, and the old passes away, and he wipes away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and he has made all things new. That is shalom. That is the kingdom of God, right? And, and that is, it's the restoration of all that's been lost with sin, starting, for, starting with our relationship with God and encompassing everything from health to relationships to everything, right? So, so we look at the nature of this revolution. Now we turn to talk about the inevitability of this revolution, the inevitability of the revolution. One of the interesting things to look at in the Bible is this image of darkness and light. Now, this is especially true of Christmas. Uh, one thing to, to notice about the Christmas story is that everything happens at night, right? Right? you ever notice that right the shepherds are watching their flocks by night and the angels show up right the wise men are following this star where you can only really follow a star at night right Jesus is born at night Uh, they go to Herod at night so you know the one of the names that Jesus is given in the Bible in, in Revelation chapter 22 Jesus is given the name of the bright and morning star now that's interesting Because in the Bible, the coming of the kingdom of God, it is compared to the shift from night to day. It's compared to a sunrise, to the dawning of a new day. In Romans chapter 13, Paul says this. He says, Do this knowing the time. That it is now high time to awake from sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, and the day is at hand. What Paul's saying there is that where we are at spiritually in the history of the world is dawn. A few months ago, I climbed Long's Peak with a a couple guys from church here, and and we left home around one in the morning, and we started hiking in the middle of the night, right? It was completely dark. We had to use flashlights. Couldn't see anything. And as we were hiking, the sun rose. Uh, and, and when the sun rises, you know, it's not like when you flip on a switch in your house and, and the lights just come on and, and fill the room. You know, the sun rises pretty slowly. And at first, you know, when the sun's rising, everything seems the same. You, you almost don't even notice that anything's happening. The only thing you notice is that it's not quite as dark as it was a moment ago. And as time goes by, you notice that the eastern sky is beginning to change. It's not what it was. There's some kind of light there. It's, it's very faint, but it's, it's there. And, and the stars that have been visible in the sky all night long, they begin to disappear. And soon, the only thing that's left, the only star that's left in the sky is the morning star, which is actually the, the planet Venus, but we call it the morning star. It's the last star that you'll see in the sky. It's the last indication of night, really. It's the last indication that the day is coming and the night is far spent. It's almost over. The next thing that happens after that is the sun actually rises. The day actually comes. So check this out. Jesus Christ is born at night, in the darkest night of world's history, right? And his arrival is the arrival of the morning star, how beautiful is that? And where we're at spiritually in the history of the world, this is dawn. And, and that is an interesting thing to think about, really, because that describes where we're at. Dawn is neither night nor day, right? It's, it's both, really, at the same time. The day is coming, and the night is leaving, but at dawn, they're both present at the same time. And that's really where we're at right now. Jesus is the bright and morning star. His coming On the first Christmas, it marks the arrival of dawn. And dawn is a time when two kingdoms are present at the same time. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of this age and the kingdom of heaven, they're both present at the same time. And we live in this tension between them at dawn. That's why when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, he would say, sometimes he would say, the kingdom is here. But other times he would say, the kingdom is coming. If you follow the biblical analogy of a sunrise, well then that, that, that makes sense. Jesus is describing dawn. His coming marks the arrival of dawn. If you think about the things that Jesus did, when you realize, what you realize is that all the miracles, all the things that Jesus did were for one purpose. They were manifestations of the kingdom of God. So think about the, you know, okay, remember this. Remember what I said earlier about how the nature of the revolution that Jesus brings is a revolution of restoration. The restoration of shalom, right? Well, then now think about the things that Jesus did, the works that Jesus did. He comes into the world. He declares the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. It's coming in fullness, but now it's here in part. And then what does he do? He heals people. Now, you ever think about why did he do that? He comes into the world. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he heals people. It's because in the kingdom of God, there is no sickness. In the kingdom of God, those who are sick are healed and restored. This is a manifestation of the kingdom of God. And Jesus raises people from the dead. Because in the kingdom of God, there is no more death. He He teaches truth and he refutes error. That's a manifestation of the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of truth. He pronounces forgiveness and grace. Why? Because forgiveness and grace are the values of the kingdom of God. So he is the bright and morning star. His arrival marks the arrival of dawn. The light is here. The kingdom of God is here, but only in part. So like the light at dawn, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet here in full force. Darkness is also still here, right? But the darkness is is also, it's not here in full force anymore. It's been broken by the light, but it's still here in part. And we still have to deal with the curse of sin because of that. We still live in a broken world. We live in broken bodies. And this is, I think, an important understanding in regard to why even today when, when we do things like we pray for healing or for other miraculous things to happen, we pray for people and some people are healed, but others are not. And that confuses some people, right? They say the kingdom is here. Why is it that some people are healed and some aren't? It's because the kingdom of God is here in part, but not yet in fullness. It's, it's still dawn. You know, many of you know this, some of you might not, but uh, when my daughter was born, she was, she was essentially born dead. And uh, the doctors were able to resuscitate her, but she didn't breathe on her own for, for the first few weeks of her life. You know, she was hooked up to all kinds of machines, and, and the doctors had told us not to expect her to survive. They told us that uh, if she did survive, that she would be severely brain damaged and probably uh, very handicapped for the rest of her life. Well, to make a long story short, God healed her. It's a miracle. You see her running around in here today, right? It's a miracle. It is, honestly, it is the truest, most genuine miracle I've ever witnessed in my entire life. And it happened with my own daughter, right? That's a manifestation of the kingdom of God. God heals people. God restores people. That is a sign that the darkness has been broken and the kingdom of God has come. But think about this. My daughter was healed, right? But someday, sooner or later, and I I certainly hope later than sooner, uh, if if Jesus doesn't come back first, someday my daughter will get sick again and she will die. I I hope that never happens, honestly. Um, But the reality of the time that we live in is that it will happen eventually, unless Jesus comes back first. And think about this too: Jesus healed all these people, right? but every person that Jesus healed eventually got sick and died of something else. All the people that Jesus rose from the dead, uh, raised from the dead, they eventually died again. See this is what it means to live at dawn. It means that the kingdom has come. But like the sunlight at dawn, it's not yet here in full force. The darkness is waning, the light is growing stronger, and we look forward to the time when the sunrise will break over the horizon and wash away the darkness completely. And that time is coming. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The sunrise is coming. The bright and morning star has appeared as the final sign that the new day is dawning. So the new day that's coming, it's inevitable. The revolution is unstoppable. It's coming, like the, like the new day dawning. Now, and we look forward to that day, and we say what the early Christians said. You know, they had this term, as an Aramaic term, Maranatha. It means, come quickly, Lord. And that was their call. Come quickly, Lord. We wait for your kingdom. We live in a time when the kingdom's here in part, but we long for the time when the kingdom will be here in fullness. The good news is that that time is coming. It's like the sunrise, it's unstoppable, it's inevitable. Second Peter verse, uh, chapter one verse 19, it says this: "We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as a light, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart." So we've talked about the nature of the revolution. We've talked about the inevitability of the revolution, but now let's get practical. Let's talk about how to be prepared for this revolution. And there are two things that we must do to prepare for this revolution. Number one, we must repent and believe. And number two, we must put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So number one, repent and believe. In our scripture reading this morning, we read how John the Baptist came and his job, his calling, was to prepare the way for Jesus. And the message that he preached was actually the same message that Jesus preached, and that was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now you have to understand that this was certainly a very surprising thing for people in Israel to hear. This was a very unexpected thing for them to hear because for thousands of years, they've been waiting for this Messiah. It's the center of, like I said, their cultural narrative. It's the center of their whole society, this expectation, this hope for the Messiah, who's going to come and establish the kingdom of God and restore shalom to the world. They've been waiting for this forever. And surely their expectation was that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come and the message will be, Rejoice, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Rejoice, be glad, it's here, we've been waiting for it. The Messiah has come. But instead, what do they get? They get this guy in all these crazy clothes with bug legs hanging out of his teeth, and he comes around and says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Not rejoice. He says, Before you can start rejoicing, hey, before you get excited, repent of your sins. There's something you need to do first before you can get excited about the kingdom of God. You see, in all this talk about shalom and the kingdom of God, the Jewish people had this tendency to assume that they would be part of the kingdom of God. Naturally, that was their assumption, that they would get to enjoy this restored shalom of the kingdom of God. But the thing is this, Now, think about it. Now, this is laid out clearly in the Old Testament, but they had a tendency to overlook certain verses, as all of us tend to do, I think, right? There are certain verses that we pay a little bit less attention to. Um, If God's coming to establish a kingdom of righteousness and peace, and he's coming to judge the nations for sin, well, then that means that the unrighteous have no part, no place in that kingdom. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not be part of the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will be part of the judgment when Christ comes to judge the nations. And that's a pretty big problem, right? Because guess who's unrighteous? Uh, You and me and everybody else who's ever lived, right? All people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. The kingdom of God is everlasting life, but the wages of sin is death. And if everybody's sin, well, that means that everybody's going to die and no one will inherit the kingdom of God. And so then what's the point of the kingdom of God? Is it just so that God can hang out there by himself? Obviously not, but that's why the gospel is such good news. Because the message of the gospel is that God became a man. And he didn't just become a man to rule over an empty kingdom. He became a man so that he could make you qualified to partake of that kingdom. You know, that's what we remember at Christmas, that God became a man. He came to this earth to start a revolution, to establish a new kingdom. And every he did everything necessary for you and I to be qualified to partake of that kingdom. He came to substitute himself for us as the perfect substitute in both his life and his death to make us completely righteous through his life and his death so that we can be qualified to partake of the kingdom of God. You know, the significance of Jesus' perfect life is this. He lived that perfect sinless life so that it could be substituted, so it could be credited to your account, imparted to you. And the significance of his death on the cross is that on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for your sins on himself. In other words, God treated him as if he had lived your life so that he could treat you as if you had lived his life. Jesus took our place so that we could take his place. He substituted himself for us both in his life and his death. And that's why God's words is will say what Jeff said this morning, that, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So what does that mean then? Does that mean then that if Jesus has done all this substitutionary work for us, does that mean that all people will enter the kingdom of God because of what Jesus has done? Well, the answer is no. Not all people will. And do you know why? Because in order to receive the life of Christ, you must first lay down your life. Jesus said this in John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That means that not everyone will see the kingdom of God. The only way to see the kingdom of God is to be born again. And the only way to be born again is that you first got to lay down your life. That's what it means to repent. You know that repentance isn't just feeling bad about something. It's not just saying sorry for something. Repentance is actually an action in which you turn away from something. It's the action of turning away from something and turning towards something else. And the something that you must turn to is Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be born again. You turn away from sin. You give up. You lay down your old life, the person you have been, and you die. So that you can turn to Christ and be born again to new life in him. So you can take up his life. So the first and most important thing we must do to prepare for the revolution that Jesus is bringing is repent of your sins and believe in the gospel if you haven't repented of your sins and believed in the gospel, if you haven't yet been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, then for you, that revolution that's coming is not good news for you. That's not joyful news. You can't rejoice that the kingdom is coming because when it comes, it will not mean eternal life for you. It will mean judgment. So in order to be prepared for the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, You have to repent of your sins, lay down your life, turn to Christ and take up his life as your Lord and Savior so that you can partake in the kingdom of God. The other thing we must do to prepare for the revolution that Jesus is bringing is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what the rest of that verse from Romans 13 says. We read part of it earlier. The night is gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. A new day is dawning. God has called us out of darkness and into the light, so we should walk in the light, and no longer live under the influence of the darkness. See, Jesus is bringing a revolution. It's a new order, and this order is the way of shalom, right? It's the way that leads to true life, true flourishing of life, to satisfaction and joy. But here's the thing about living at the time that we live at. We live at a time when both the kingdom of this age and the kingdom of heaven, the old kingdom and the new kingdom are present at the same time. And what that means for us practically is that it is possible to be a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ but still live under the influence of the old kingdom. 1 John chapter 2, John says exactly that. He says, the darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother still walks in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So that's saying the same thing, that it is possible to be a citizen of the kingdom of light, but still live under the influence of the kingdom of darkness. So how should we prepare for the revolution that Jesus is bringing? Number one, by repenting of sin and putting our hope and trust fully in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And next, by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and walking in that newness of life rather than continuing to live under the influence of the old kingdom. And Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4. You can follow along in your Bible, but just let this sink in. Put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as Christ and God forgave you. You know, that's what it looks like to walk in the light. That's a new way of living. It's different from the way of this world to the way that is natural to this world because it's, it's not natural. It's the way of the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like to live under the influence of the kingdom that is coming rather than the kingdom that is passing away. This is the order of the kingdom of God, the new order of things. So the meaning of Christmas is really this, that a revolution has begun. It's a revolution like no other revolution that's ever come before. It's a revolution of restoration, and its coming is inevitable. So let us make sure that we're prepared for the coming of the kingdom of God. And if you've never truly repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope for your salvation, I urge you to do that today. Because the new day is on the horizon, and you need to make sure that you're ready when it comes. And for those of you who have been born again and have already put your faith in Jesus Christ, put your faith in the gospel as your only hope for salvation, I would urge you, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not walk in darkness any longer, but walk in the light of the kingdom of God, which has come in part, but it is coming in fullness. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your kingdom has come. Lord, thank you that we can see the evidence that the darkness has been broken, that the light is coming. Lord, thank you that you are the bright and morning star. And we look forward to the revelation of the day. Lord, we look forward to the new day that's coming. Lord, we look forward to your kingdom. We look forward to the restoration of shalom. And, Lord, as we look forward to those things, thank you, Lord, that we can be citizens of your kingdom now, and we can walk in the the precepts of your kingdom now. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, I pray for anyone who has yet to give their life to you. Lord, I pray that they would stop resisting the call of the Spirit, and that they would give their life to you fully today, holding nothing back. And, Lord, I pray for those of us who know you. Lord, let us Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in newness of life. We ask for your spirit to empower us to do that. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen.